ahead and have a seat. I want to take just a moment and welcome you again to Hagerstown Church. It really is a pleasure uh, to have each and every one of you uh, joining us this morning. Um, I want to just, as we jump into our text, I want to just remind you about the reading plan. We haven't talked about it a, a lot here lately, but I want to put another plug in for it. Um, at the beginning of the year, we all started a reading plan together, and we asked that God would give us both a, a unity as a people and also an understanding, a, a deeper understanding of His Word, and that we would know the Lord better. I can tell you confidently that that prayer request that we've asked for, that we've prayed diligently for, and we've looked for and and waited for, that God actually has been meeting that in so many ways and on so many levels in our body. And so I want to encourage you by that story and then also uh, challenge you to keep your hand on the plow. If if in September you've begun uh, to be distracted, and maybe you've even let it falter a little bit, it's not too late to jump back in, to pick that back up. But we believe that the Word of God matters, and in it we find nutrition, we find hope, and we find help, and, uh, and so I want to challenge you with that. Uh, last week we looked at the story of Lazarus. We looked at his life, his death, and even his resurrection. And we saw that all of those things, life, death, and resurrection, every aspect, every level of his life was for the glory of God. Even the, even the pain that we go through, even the vitality that we've been given, it seems like at sometimes we have a surplus. Yes, even that is all for the glory of God. Individually, we saw that our lives are there to glorify God. Every single part of it was true of Lazarus. It's true of you. It's true of all of us together. And that's what I want to look at. I want to look at this morning about this collective value of the church and how together as saints of God, how we bring glory to God it might actually appear to you in your life as you've just looked over and considered your, your, your journey as a Christian. And you might think, I actually bring glory to God, more glory to God when I'm a lone ranger. Maybe you're thinking that this morning. I don't play well with others. They should put a sign on me. Maybe that's what you're thinking. I know that sometimes can be said of me. We think maybe we could bring God more glory individually Yet that's not the case. As we look at the text this morning, I believe that you'll see that, that God wants to see a unity amongst his people and that that unity will be found in the very words of God. That's what we have together this morning. That is what unifies us as a people of God. The Miami Heat, they shocked the basketball world in the summer of 2010 when they landed the two most coveted free agents that were on the market, LeBron James and Chris Chris Bosch, and they actually joined their superstar they already had, which was uh, Dwayne Wade. Now they had a team that was stacked with overwhelming talent. And the Heat, they, uh, they threw this huge uh, party to celebrate their superstars, and commentators and journalists began to comment and wonder about what was actually going to take place. There were several that were wondering if that was actually a good move, to have that much talent, that much power, that much leadership on one team. As a matter of fact, some said they didn't think it was. LeBron didn't think so. He boasted that not one, two, three, four, five, or six, or even seven championships, they would win more than seven together. After the initial celebration, people began to wonder if it would actually work. Could they really make it? Concerns that Miami lacked, uh, they were concerned that Miami lacked a clear hierarchy and it turned out to be well-founded. As a matter of fact, they couldn't win clutch games. In games that were five at the end of the, in the last quarter that were five points or fewer, they lost. They only won 32% of them. They couldn't win close games. Who would take the, the game-winning shots? Sometimes we might think, well, the the more power that we have as an individual, the more talent that we have individually, the more uh, opportunity that that we have to bring glory to God or to win. And and oftentimes that's just not the case. You see, uh, it doesn't matter how much power we have individually. It doesn't matter how much uh, uh, talent that we have individually. It doesn't matter if you have uh, matching flashy jerseys or not. Those things don't win ball games. There has to be a unity amongst the players. There has to be a, a unity amongst the players. There has to be a strong common denominator. And, not, uh, and pride, personal pride, often does not serve well on a team. 
In our passage this morning, we'll see, among other things, that Jesus' desire is that the church be unified. As he and his Father and the Trinity, as they are unified. But how? How will the church be unified? Lots of times as we look at John chapter 17, which is where we'll be at this morning, we, we think of the glory of God, the glory of Christ, and how he has laid down that glory and condescended here on earth, God incarnate, at the end of his life, at the end of his journey, when his work was done, in this passage, John chapter 17, he looks back to his father and he says, give me the glory that I once had. Glorify your son, I've glorified you. Send me to the cross, he prays, even that God's will be done. Even in that, in his submission, he is glorifying his father as he asks his father to glorify him. We think of that, that's definitely a theme in this passage. It resonates And echoes John chapter 1 where we began this series, God with us. I still ask the question, what brings the unity that we have as a church? What will bring the unity that we desire as a body? Jesus is glorified through us when we are unified in him. And unification comes when we operate with loyal dependence on the word of God. When we have absolute dependence on the word of God. We are a unified church, and in that, Christ is glorified. So I want to invite you to read with me John chapter 17. We're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. It's hard to stop in the middle of Jesus' prayer. There's not a really good So let's read this passage together. John chapter 17, verse number 1. The Bible says that when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And since you have given him authority over all flesh to give him eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave to me out of the world. Yours they were, and, they, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you had given me. I had guarded them, and not one of them had been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word. The world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrated myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. that They may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That They also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. 
I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we truly do come to your scripture this morning that you've given to us. We ask that you would encourage us, that you'd convict us, that you would challenge us, and that ultimately your church would be fed and guided through the read scriptures, through the preached word this morning. Spirit, we ask these things because we cannot do them in and of ourselves. We ask them in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Right at the beginning of this passage, Jesus mentions the context. He points in, in John chapter 1, he points back, or 17 verse 1, he points back to the previous chapter, John chapter 16. I'm going to draw your attention to that as well. Verse 32 on, Jesus says, Behold, he's speaking to his disciples, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me, and I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Many times in the book of John, Jesus has said, my hour has not come. The hour is not time. And here we see that the hour has come. What is he speaking of? Jesus is speaking of his passion. He's he's speaking of the end. He's speaking of his glorification. When he will be raised up and draw all men to himself, he's speaking of the cross. He's speaking of the resurrection. He's speaking of the ascension. These things are nigh. As Jesus will be crucified and the shepherd will be struck, the sheep will be scattered. As he speaks to his disciples, he breaks this news to them and begins to, to unpack the disciples are in a bad way. You can imagine how you would feel as you followed this rabbi and all of his teachings, recognizing that he is the Messiah. So much that you understood, and yet so much you didn't. And now you hear, he will be gone. He'll be struck. And that they'll run. So this is a rough passage for them. They're in the upper room. We're not exactly sure where the end of 16 takes place. It may be in the upper room. It may be as they walk to the garden. We're not sure. Literally, they're down to the hours. They're down to the minutes that they have with Jesus and what they would consider to be safety. There at the end of Jesus' comments and teaching in John chapter 16, he stands up and he prays aloud to his Father, which is what we just read. I believe as Jesus prays, we can pick up a few things just quickly about prayer. We can pick up a few things about prayer. We are Jesus' disciples. We are to be learning of him. And I think that when Jesus prays, we should be taking notes doing as he does. And so what was he doing? When, when he went to his father in prayer, he was doing it in tough times. He was demonstrating to his disciples that when tough times come, they, they have an advocate with the father, that they, like he, can go to the father. Jesus is praying an intercessory prayer for them. And he won't be doing a whole lot of it at this point. He wasn't doing a lot of. And after his ascension, that is his role. And so he gives them a, a bit of a snapshot, a sneak peek of his, what his role will be like moving forward. But he invites his disciples in to, to see how he prays and to even pray as he prays. Imagine this. So many times uh, we, we say that we should pray both in the good times and in the bad times. We should be always dependent on God. And I would say, yes, that is absolutely true. But You know, oftentimes many of us don't pray to God in the tough times. We don't. We're just as guilty of not leaning and depending on our Father in the good times and the bad times as we are the good times. Jesus is demonstrating even God, the Son of God, when he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, he goes to his Father in heaven. Oftentimes as Christians, we have this fatalistic mindset as if God has predetermined all that will take place. And it doesn't matter what we do, what we say, that it's going to take place. And there's some degree of truth to that, but at the same time, Jesus is pushing back and saying no. God has called us to pray. He's invited us in to pray. And quickly, something that we can learn from Jesus is this, that we are to pray. 
When times are good, we're to pray. We're to, we're to depend. When times are tough, we're not to white-knuckle it. We're not to try even harder. Yes, those things are great. We're to depend on our Lord. And so, church, pray. Prayer demonstrates dependence and it cultivates faith. It demonstrates a dependence and it cultivates faith. And we as a church need both of those. We as individuals, we need those. So that's just an interesting thing. Jesus stands up and as he did in John 11, he prays aloud so his disciples can hear. Why would he pray out loud where his disciples can hear? Why would he pray in earshot of these brothers? He wanted them to hear what he was praying. He wanted them to hear that. He wanted them to, to know what he was asking God for on their behalf. Have you ever had somebody pray aloud for you? When you really needed prayer, when you really needed encouragement and somebody put their hand on your shoulder, hand, hand, hand in hand, head to head, asking God on your behalf that, that something would take place, it's a powerful thing. Because we know that God answers prayer. And when we hear somebody else praying for us, it's, 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 a, it's an extra encouragement, is it not? So I would encourage us to be a church that does just that, that we would pray aloud, that we wouldn't just say, hey, I'm praying for you, that we really would stop and that we would pray and that we would be specific in our prayers. Friend, pray for your friend. Pray aloud and be specific for them. Fathers, pray for your children and let, and let them hear how you're praying. Let them hear what you're asking God on their behalf for Husbands, over your wives, let them hear your prayers. Let them see what you're asking God for. Jesus is a wonderful example of prayer. Who, would, who could be a better example for us? We would depend on God in the good times and the bad times. Also that we would pray aloud. These are some cursory thoughts before we jump into the main part that I wanted to really highlight this morning. Which is this. Again, Jesus is glorified through us. When we are unified in him. And unification comes when we are wholly dependent on the word of God. Jesus is glorified through us when we are unified in him. And unification comes when we are wholly dependent on the word of God. This morning as we walk through this text, I want to point out three things to you. The first is this, the word saves us. That the word saves us. And for many of you, that will be such a, a pleasant reminder, I hope for all of us. That the word of God is what has come to us. And our faith has come because we have heard. And so the word saves us as we place our faith in that. Ultimately, in addition to that, the word separates us. It separates us in the sense that it calls us out from the world. As Christians, the word makes us different. It makes us a peculiar people. As we submit ourselves to the truths that have been revealed and lastly, the word sanctifies us. Sanctification is very similar to separation. As a matter of fact, it's basically the same thing. But the, the, the context I'm trying to draw out is this, that the word sanctifies us. It sets us apart and cleanses us. So the word separates us from the world, but it also sanctifies us unto God. One of the main themes of, of this prayer this morning, as we talked about earlier just a moment ago, is unity. Unity. What is unity? It's a, it's a commonality. It's a common denominator. And it's hard to have unity just for unity's sake. The fact that we want unity is not enough to give us unity, right? Even if we all wanted unity, that's, that's not enough. It has to be something more. Something that our friendship, that our, our relationship stands on. Maybe it's a peculiar uh, taste that you have, an acquired taste for a certain type of food. And that commonality, that common ground... Is where your unity as a friend or, or a couple can come from. Perhaps it's a certain coffee shop, a new coffee shop that has wonderful coffee and great branding. Perhaps it's an affinity for a certain sports team that's doing well or not doing so well. Maybe it's a passel of kids that you raise together. That commonality that you have, it gives you a unity. Maybe it's a classic movie or a, or a TV show. Whatever it is. There has to be some common denominator that unifies us and that our relationship is built on. And as human beings, we have that in Christ. As Christians, we have that in the very word of Christ. As human beings this morning, we, we have much in common. One thing in particular is that we live on the same planet, right? So we all have one common denominator at least. 
Some of you might say, well, I've met some people that were from other planets. At least I was suspect that they were. Maybe at some point in time you've even wondered that you could have options and be on another planet and not with the people that you are on this planet with. Maybe you even desire to launch out with a strong bound to some other planet, some other solar system. In sadness, you've realized that that's not possible. You jump, you try to break free of gravity's pull on you, you don't get far, and you crash to the ground. You see, there's one thing that we all have in common, and that is our susceptible uh, nature towards gravity. It, it holds us all to this planet. And Earth has great mass, and therefore it has great gravity. And the Word of God also has a mass, and it draws Christians to it. As Christians this morning, that is our common denominator. That is our commonality. Yes, Christ, but Christ who is raised up and elevated in the Scriptures. That's our commonality this morning. So we have to lean into that. And I'm going to walk through the text this morning and kind of point out, this is a, a sub-theme, I think we could say, of this passage. This unifying power of the Word of God. The unity of the church is possible because the word given by God through Jesus to the saints. That's it. Unity is possible because we have the word of God given through Jesus to us, the saints. The word of God has weight and has mass and it draws us to itself as an anchor. So first, the word saves this morning. Look in verse number six at the very end. It says, and they have kept your word. Jesus is speaking of his disciples Specifically, and generally, you'll see that he's also speaking of all believers that, that will, all disciples in the future. In verse 6, he says, They have kept your word. In verse 8, it says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. They have believed. The words, they've received the words that Jesus gave from God. You see that they had a commonality in the relationship with Jesus because he had had relayed the words of God to them. And so what is the word? Well, in one sense, it's the message of the gospel given through Jesus Christ. It's the message that says God is holy and man is sinful and that's a problem. Because of sin, God will punish you. God will will separate himself from you from all eternity in a place called hell. That's the gospel, but that's not the complete gospel. It goes on to say that God loved his people and that he sent Jesus to take the punishment of all of those who would repent and believe in him. That's the gospel. And that's the message that Jesus came to declare. And so when we see the word, ultimately, primarily, the word of God that has come down is this message, the gospel. But in another sense, as we saw in John chapter 1, it's the person, Jesus. It's the person. The Word is the very incarnation of God himself. The Word made flesh. We saw that at the beginning as as Brett shared with us from John chapter 1. And the disciples, they received this Jesus. They received this word. They received his message. And Christian, if you are one, you have done the same. You've received this word. You've received this message and it us a common ground. As Christians, that is what we stand on. That is what we've come to God by. It's the word of God. The gospel. Our common denominator is Jesus. Our con- common denominator is his message. The word saves us collectively to Jesus. And the end result is that we are unified together in Christ together. Ephesians chapter 4 is really helpful here. Verse number 1, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you get that message? Do you hear the theme of unity? 
of unity. Oftentimes, as I spend time with brothers and sisters who are walking in darkness and struggling with whatever it is, oftentimes that thing they're struggling with is forgiveness. No, not to be forgiven, but to give it. It's difficult, isn't it? We've been given forgiveness, right? Ephesians 4, as, we have received, as we've been given that, we must now forgive. It's almost like a hook there, right? We, we readily and gratefully receive the forgiveness that has been extended to us, but when we're called to, to give that to someone else, it's so difficult, isn't it? And that's what, that's what gets in the way, right, of our Christian life oftentimes, forgiving somebody else. And yet that is what we're called to, is it not? We're called to the gospel that says you can be forgiven and you can forgive others as well. It's the gospel. It informs us as a body of believers. We're attracted, we're drawn with a gravity towards this mass. The gospel found in the word of God and it says that you can be forgiven but you must also forgive others. And that's, where, that's what makes it possible. That's how we can have the one faith, the one Lord, the one baptism. Sometimes we think the Christian journey will bring us on our different destinations. Our own conclusions. We walk our own path. I'll walk mine and you walk yours. It's the mantra of liberalism today in the church. That's false. It's not true. The Christian life is not a, a walk by yourself. It's not a solo no, we're called to Christ, but it's not lonely there. And not because of Christ alone, but because he has called others. And so we walk together. We find unity and identity in the gospel together. We find eternal life. Verse 3, it says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Lots of times when we see that word eternal life, we think of it being a, a chronological term, but it's actually a relational term. It's not saying that you'll live forever necessarily, although that is true. It's saying it's a a full-bodied life. that doesn't end, yes, but it's full-bodied. With God, it goes on to say that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's fullness of life. Fullness on every level with an extended bandwidth. So the word, what does it do? It saves us. So how do you respond to that this morning? What do we do? We thank God that he would send it. We go back to to, to day one in, in the God with us series and we thank God that he would send his word to us. He would speak to us in darkness. He would draw us to the light. He would remove the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. The word, it saves us. As I mentioned earlier, we're also going to talk about the fact that the word separates us. The word separates us. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, I have given them your word. I've given it to them. They've received it. He says, the world has therefore hated them because they're not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. John chapter 10 and verse 22, Jesus, is, Jesus says at the time, or it says at the time of the feast of dedication, there in Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, just tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them and said, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Jesus goes on to say, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus says in John chapter 17 that he gave the word, his word, that he received from the Father to his disciples, and they received it. And because they received it, the world hated them because they weren't of the world anymore. They had been called out. They had been separated out from the world goes to say that, therefore, the, the word of God, as it comes to us, is authoritative in our lives. And it calls us out. That's exactly what the church means. That's where we get the word church. It means called out. The word of God, it calls us out. 
And it defines things for us. It's authoritative in our lives. It defines what marriage is. It defines what life is. It defines what gender, what sexuality, what ethics, morality, purpose of life, meaning, all of these things, it authoritatively defines for us. And when we submit ourselves as Christians to the word of God, we are therefore and thereby separated from culture at large because we are different. We submit ourselves to the authority of the word of God revealed. And it's so different than the culture We look at the world differently, and it it oftentimes leads the world to hate us, as Jesus warns here. Jesus warned his disciples, they hate you, but it's not because of you, it's not in and of yourselves. They hate you because they hated me, because Jesus also is not of this world. And he spoke as one with authority over the culture, out and different. So misunderstanding is in front of us, even now marginalization we experience even persecution in some areas of this world but we are people of the word of God we submit ourselves to the authority of the word of God so we're saved by it and it even separates us and it makes us peculiar as we submit ourselves to the authority of God of Yahweh I'm going to give two thoughts on this quickly one Christians should look different than the world. We should look different. And I don't, don't hear me saying, if, if the world wears red, then we should wear black. Or if the world has this type of haircut, we should not have that one, and we should have this one. And that's not what I'm saying. That's not what the scriptures would teach us. But as we submit ourselves to the authority of God's clear word, there will be a noticeable difference in our lives that is drastically set us apart from the world. It's It's, it's clear. So a diagnostic question for yourself is, do you look different than the world? The way that you raise your kids, the way that you work your job, the way that you treat your spouse, the way that you treat our city, is it informed by the gospel? Is it informed by the word? Be careful. In some sense, When we do that, we will be marginalized. We will be persecuted. And yet that's what we're called to do, to submit ourselves to Scripture and to look differently as a result of that. And we don't don't seek that. We don't seek to look different for for looking different's sake. We recognize that when we submit ourselves to the authority of the Word of God, we will be different. Another thought that I wanted to share with you is that the Word separates us from the world, but it should not separate us from fellow Christians. And yet that so oftentimes is the case. That we celebrate the fact that, yes, we can be different. We can be separate from the world and we, we welcome that. But perhaps we go too far and we allow separation and division to take place in the church as well. This is not what the Lord would have for us. In fact, this passage clearly demonstrates that we as Christians should experience unity and will experience unity just as the Father and the Son are one and experience unity. And so two warnings quickly as we think of division within the church. First is this, be faithful to Scripture. We have to be faithful to Scripture. Scripture is king. I think of the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Whatever they heard, a new doctrine or a new teaching or some statement, what would they do? They would search the Scriptures. Is this true? Does this fit? Is this contradictory? I think that we would benefit from taking a play out of the Bereans book. That we too would be people of the book and that we would search it. And that we would allow scripture to be king. In a moment we'll talk about the idea that that rationale, that logic has, has dethroned scripture's authority. That even in this day and age we submit ourselves as good, smart, intelligent Americans to the word of God in so much as our rationale can follow. And where it can't, where they butt heads, sometimes we, we want to go with our own logic. We've dethroned Scripture in that. We can't. We have to be faithful to Scripture. We have to allow it to rule in our lives. But simultaneously, simultaneously we have to be humble. 
We have to be a people that are humble. It's, it's a shame that oftentimes the more that we learn about our theology and anthropology, the more arrogant we become. True anthropology should leave us with humility. It should humble us. It should bring us low as we read passages like Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 7. What do you have that you have not been given? Everything that we have, we've been given. We know nothing that is true that has not been handed to us. We've not come to any of it by our own powers of logic and reasoning. It's a gift. So true theology should humble us. So as we allow scripture to rule us, Hagerstown Church, we must also let it reign entirely over all of our man, over all of our bodies, with humility. Christians should be marked with humility. We should be marked with love. We should be marked with kindness. We should be marked with service. This is what the scriptures call us to, not just to look different, not to act peculiar, but to act with humility and love and kindness and service in our city and in our church. And the word separates us collectively from the world. It doesn't isolate us to ourselves again. We're not to be out in the wilderness on our own, as it were. But just as the, as the scriptures save us together to something, they separate us out of the world together. And we walk together. That is the beauty of the church. We're called out from the church or from the, from, the, from the culture and from the world. And together we walk separated. And remember the other part of that separation is that we're separated from something and we're separated to something. That's the second or the third part, the second part of that sanctification piece. The word sanctifies us. Sanctification is closely related to separation. It's almost it's basically the same idea to set apart for our purposes this morning, I want you to think of being called from something and being called to something. It's a simultaneous action, but two separate aspects of it. We're called out from the world and we are called to God. Look at verse 16. It says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, So I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. Jesus is praying to the Father, according to the Father's will, that his disciples be set apart. The idea is that they be continually cleansed, they be continually conformed into the image of Christ. And Jesus is saying almost there, though they believe, there are things that they hold that are still untrue. Though they are walking in holiness, there is still sin in their lives. Thank God as we celebrated this morning through song that he doesn't expect us to come to him already having cleaned ourselves up. That he invites us in to this process of sanctification. I'm sure that you can relate to that this morning. You can relate to this just as the disciples You need Jesus to pray over you that he would pray to God the Father. Father, sanctify them through truth. Your word is truth. I know that that's me this morning. I pray. I pray over our church weekly, individually, that God would sanctify us. And how will that take place? I love that Jesus says this. I love that we can hear him pray. Because he says, sanctify them in truth, Father. Your word is truth. My D group this, this week, we were talking about this process of sanctification. We were imagining this idea that, that uh, does God just wave something over us and suddenly we're sanctified? Well, yes and no. Positionally, yeah. When Jesus' uh, his blood is shed abroad in our hearts, we're cleansed. Positionally, God sees us as righteous, as sanctified. But practically speaking, there is a journey. There is a process that we go through of sanctification and, and the tool that, that, the word of God, that the Spirit of God uses and the people of God is the Word of God. And He carves us and He cleanses us and He washes us with the Word. As Jesus does the church, as, fa- as fathers should do their families and husbands their wives, we wash each other with the Word. We sanctify one another. Brothers and sisters, we We call each other to submission to the word of God. And therein we are sanctified. 
The word of God, it sanctifies us. I want to say this. The level of sanctification in your life is directly proportionate to the amount of time that you spend in the scriptures. The level of sanctification in your life is directly proportionate to the amount of time that you spend in the scriptures. God has sovereignly willed that his word and his spirit would work together in your life. If you run from the scriptures, you're running from sanctification. As you wonder, why, why am I not receiving victory in this area of my life? Why am I not able to lead better here? Why am I not able to, to accomplish this task? Why can I not pursue the Lord like I desire? Because the level of sanctification in your life, the level of you being set apart is equal, proportionate to the amount of time that you seek the word of God. And so by faith, we go to the scriptures on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, and we ask that God, through his spirit, would empower us, that he would teach us through the scriptures. We gather here on Sunday mornings for the same purpose. We gather with our D groups and soon with our life groups, asking God that he would sanctify us through his word, and his word is truth. Truth means without error. There's a term that is used to describe scripture. It's become more and more Important that we recognize it and hold to it here even in the last 60 years. And that is this word called inerrancy. It's used to describe the word of God. Inerrancy is the idea that scripture does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. That scripture does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. I don't know where you're at this morning. If you're a believer... Maybe you're here gathered this morning and you're a bit skeptical about the the word of God and its power. I want to point out a few things related to the inerrancy of scripture. The first thing I want to point out to you is this, that Jesus believed that the Old Testament was true and that it was authoritative in his life. That Jesus believed that the Old Testament was true and authoritative in his life. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 29, he says this to to the Pharisees, you're wrong because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. You're wrong. You don't even know the scripture or the power of God. You don't know the power of God because you don't know the scriptures, he's saying. Jesus is saying in the Old Testament, this is the very word of God. Jews have believed that through the centuries. The Old Testament was the revealed word of God. So follow me here. There's There's a train of thought. Jesus believed the Old Testament was true and authoritative, that it was the very words of God given to mankind. Remember when he prayed, when he faced temptation, what did he do? He quoted scripture. Why? Because he knew the power of God. He quoted the very words of God. So not only does Jesus believe that the Old Testament was true and authoritative, but Jesus believed the apostles were speaking on his behalf. Number two, write that down. This is helpful. Number one, Jesus believed that the Old Testament was true and authoritative. Number two, that Jesus believed that the apostles were speaking on his behalf. John chapter 16 Right before 17, what does he say? I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you to all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for, when, or for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus is believing, he's saying here that the apostles will know that they will hear, that they'll be reminded, moved by the Spirit even, as it relates to the very words of God. And this isn't the only passage where Jesus says that they will be reminded. So the apostles, what do we, what do we know about the apostles? Well, what do we know about Jesus. What do we know in the New Testament if it hasn't been handed down to us through the, through the apostles, written by the apostles themselves, that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That they wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus believed that the Old, that the Old Testament was true. He believed that the apostles, the New Testament, were speaking on his behalf. Number three, the apostles and early Christians believed that the New Testament was on the same level as the Old Testament, that it was Scripture. Listen to what Peter says about Paul. He's kind of thrown off on him here, in a way. 
First Peter, or I'm sorry, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given. He's quoting one of Paul's epistles. As he does in all the letters when he speaks in them and matters of these, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Exclusively, that term is used of writings that were believed to have been received from the very mouth of God. The scriptures. So the apostles believed that the things that they were writing were scripture even in that day. It was the very words of God. So I want to get, want to get real. Just kind of bring it down almost to, to a close right here. If the words of God, if, if the scriptures are true, they're from God, why do they not hold greater sway in your life? And should they? Should they? I don't ask that question in condemnation. But as we think about the fact that it is the scriptures that make us wise unto salvation. It's the scriptures that separate us out from the world and separate us unto God. Shouldn't they hold greater sway? Shouldn't they have greater authority in our life? And, and if they are true, if they are inerrant, then we have to divorce ourselves from these skeptic views, from these liberal views, that man doesn't need the Bible, it's, 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 it's untrue, contains errors, errors and, 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 and is ruled by our rationale and our logic, and what we perceive in our experience to be true. We have to throw that to the side. God has spoken He's literally breathed these exhaled scriptures for us. We have to throw aside this liberalistic idea, this compromise that somehow the Bible should be updated. Certain parts removed because they can't be held by intelligent people. Church, truth is always the foundation of unity in the church. Truth is the foundation of unity, and we have been promised unity. As we gather together as the saints, we gather on the word of God. And as we do, we will be separated out from the world and separated unto God. And this takes place through the word of God, through the scriptures that are revealed. I pray that in my life and in the life of this church that it would be true, that the word would matter here. That would matter in this church. That would matter in this, matter in this place that we would sing it, that we would pray it, that we would preach it, that we would believe it, and that we would do it. I want to end with a passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's such a beautiful, rich passage that gives us some strong instruction. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 12. I'll begin reading there. It says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They will be. They'll be hated, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived because they've left the authority of Scripture. Because they've chased after skepticism or liberalism. Verse 14, he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Don't stop. Don't look to the right or to the left. Continue and what you have learned and firmly believed. What have you learned and firmly believed? Christ, the very word of God incarnate, came with the message of God, gave it to his apostles who received it. They also received the spirit of God who empowered them as they were utensils and tools in the hand of God to, to give us the scriptures. This is what he's speaking of. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Hold strong in what you've learned and what you firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from a child you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. Sacred writings are what makes us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say in verse 16, all scripture, both the Old 
and the New Testaments, they're scripture, they're breathed out by God, theonousos, and they're profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Church, if we look at our lives individually and collectively and we say we need reproof, we need correction, we need to be trained, we need to be equipped, the answer for all of that is in the scriptures that we have. So would it not be demonstrated, these truths, would they not be demonstrated in our calendars, in our planners, in our weekly schedules, in the time that we spend with our family, time that we spend on our own, that we would reflect these truths, that this is the scriptures of God breathed out and profitable for life, for godliness, for salvation. And when that takes place, we will be a church that is unified. And because we're standing on the word of God, and when we are a church that is unified, standing on the word of God, Jesus himself is glorified. Because it lifts up, it speaks a truth about him can't speak otherwise. So may that be true of your lives. May it be true of our church that the word would matter here. Would you pray with me? God, we come to you this morning asking that you would help us to believe this and that our lives would reflect the truths that we've read in the scriptures this morning. God, we We come to you this morning knowing that you will forgive us, that you are patient, that you're long-suffering with us. Ultimately knowing that you are working in us a faith, that you're working in us a belief and a dependence on your word. And so we pray that you would increase that this morning. Jesus, we pray that we would be unified in you, the very word of God. That in you, we would find salvation, we would find sanctification, and that you would be glorified as the world looks on. We ask these things in your name.